Hey, what's up, Bluntheads? In uh, this week's Bluntcast that we did live on our Facebook page on Friday night, we sat down with Fabiola Sinius. She's a former senior editor at Philly Mag and currently working as a race reporter for Vox.com. She did a special uh, article for Vox on Juneteenth, about Juneteenth. So we talked to her about the history of Juneteenth, what she learned doing the research for the article, and if she could have written that same piece for Philly Mag. We touched on the lack of diversity of Philly Mag, both on the editorial board and in their content, which she was pretty vocal about on Twitter. And uh, Fabiola let us know what it was like to uh, spend time one-on-one with Candace Owens and to follow her around the speaking engagements for a research for an article and interview she did. Fabiola is a fresh uh, voice in journalism, insightful, and currently a West Philly resident, and uh, we hope you enjoy Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Philly Blunt. My name's Johnny Goodtimes. I'm Reef. This is Greg. And we are extremely psyched tonight to be hanging out with a Vox writer, former Philly Mag senior editor, uh, Fabioli, Fabiola Sinius. Fabiola, welcome to the show. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So, got to ask, I don't know uh, exactly where you are, but are you guys getting fireworks going off constantly all night, every night? All the time. Yes. Yes. All right, you're a reporter. You got to tell me what's going on here because we got to work together to stop this. Yeah, so you know what's crazy is I want to say three weeks ago when the protest started, three, four weeks ago-ish, People were saying there was that that whole report about like ATMs being blown up. Yeah. So just across the city and like corner stores and just all these random spots. And I don't know that that was I think some police departments did confirm it, but there's still like so much mystery around what a lot of that noise was. But I think lately it's definitely been people just firing off firecrackers just on the block. (laughs) Yeah. Someone told me that last night, like right on their block, people were. Yeah, popping firecrackers. So. What, what about the what about the conspiracy theory the theory that it's the cops? I've heard that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've heard that too. So but I have to say, it's not. I was I was on a Zoom today for work, and every the other three people were in um, different areas of either Manhattan or the boroughs, and they're having it happen up there too as a whole discussion. I don't know if it's mm-hmm. nationwide. Oh, it's as far as I've seen people in Boston talking about it, Chicago. Like it's it's going down worldwide, nationwide. Wow. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess it's kind of a confluence of events, right? Like, it's almost 4th of July, so everybody was kind of stocking up anyway. And then didn't they just make fireworks legal in Pennsylvania, like, a month ago? Like, the worst timing for anything ever? (laughs) Right. They're like, okay, let's legalize fireworks right before people start setting off dynamite. Like, just so everybody's a little bit on edge already, and then Mm. just start throwing them out there. Yeah. It was okay. Like when we had curfew at like eight o'clock, you would hear fireworks at eight twenty, eight thirty, and I thought that was cool. Being, yo, we're out here. Curfew's on, but we're still out here shooting fireworks. And I was okay with that. But now it's just like M eighties at like midnight, twelve thirty, <laughs> one a.m. Yeah. So my first question is, how are you doing? How are you processing? How are you holding up with everything going on? I am okay. I mean. I think everyone would agree that this time right now is unprecedented. Like 
As a reporter, I've been in crazy situations where covering just what's happening across the country has been nonstop. But I don't think that any of it, any of it compares to this moment. So when I first became a journalist in, well, not when I first, but probably like a year into being a journalist in Philly, like I covered the Democratic National Convention. And that was just nonstop, right? Because we had people from all around the country in Philly, and that was just a pivotal election, right? I remember like Hillary Clinton coming to Philly all the time. We had the Obamas back and forth. And so that was just like a very exciting thing. And yes, around those times there were protests, but just nothing like what we're seeing right now. And so I think the hardest part has been just the scramble in these rooms of just like, we need everybody on deck. So if you're a wedding editor, if you're like covering science or food, it's like everybody is now covering race. Everyone is covering racial injustice. Everyone is covering the police. So I think that that's been like super fascinating to just watch how people just have to quickly learn because you need to get the story right. Because if you're not right. getting the story right, then you're that's that's not good right now. I'm just picturing the wedding person like it was a fabulous <laughs> protest today. They used you know different hues and lighting. <laughs> right, right, and in Philly, I'm sure you guys saw the the wedding of you know that couple that got yeah. married out there. Yeah, yeah I saw it out there. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that was beautiful. So, but yeah, generally, I think it's a moment of just like learning people just starting on these like anti-racism journeys, um, but just also healing, right? Just remembering self-care and, and trying to take time to heal um, as black people is just very important. Is it weird? I mean, this for you and brief. Is it weird to see like are white people? Do we seem crazy at this point? Like <laughs> we're buying all these books and New York Times lists. Like yeah, I think we've seemed crazy at all the points. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, this good crazy, but you have. To I'll let her finish, but I'll say that for me, it's been you know, it feels like a genuine effort to try to like figure this out. Like, and and it's it's the first time. I think George Floyd's killing was just so gruesome and just casual that like people are like okay maybe maybe they're not making this up i don't know like yeah. so for me it's been like yeah do the work rock out but be genuine about it so that's my opinion what do you think yeah i think for me it's just kind of seeing certain white people who i maybe know in their personal lives try to be like oh let me put the square up on instagram and i'm like mm, that's kind of weird because i know just like what you're like in your regular life so i just kind of want people to be more aligned with just like and yes right i'm not mad if you're coming to this late not a problem but at the same time like i just want the, the public persona that they're putting out there to kind of match the action that they're actually taking in their personal lives and so i feel like once those things are closer i, I i'll feel more comfortable about like people really being dedicated to to what this is for the long run yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, it's we're in such a weird space because I feel like normally all of these types of movements get co-opted by celebrities, by sports leagues, by whatever's happening that's, you know, glossy and well-produced and all that. And we don't really have those things right now, you know? So I kind of feel like the movement feels much more organic than maybe it's felt like in the past because we're, it's not getting co-opted by Hollywood or or whatever. Do, do you feel that way? And like, do you do you think that's part of the reason the movement's been so big? Is that it's been so real? Yeah, I definitely feel that grassroots part of it. Like even watching Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle special and him kind of like 
responding to what Don Lemon was saying, because right, Don Lemon was, you know, went on a rant, like, where are the celebrities? Why aren't they saying anything? But then Dave Chappelle came back and was like, the streets are speaking for themselves right now, right? Like people don't want to hear from us, you know, at the top, us from the celebrity level. And so even, for example, people like Kanye West, no one, he didn't say anything, but we then heard he set up, right, like a fund for George Floyd's daughter. daughter. He set up all this stuff and they're not, right, they're not being as vocal, but I think they're, they're doing moves that I think are more impactful. So I do think people are looking to activists on the street to kind of, lead and, and take action and just kind of follow. And I do think that that's, that's definitely like has something to do with why this is sustaining uh, the way that it is. Yeah. Do you feel positive that this is, you know, I, we're seeing changes already, but do you feel like uh, I said this before, like it feels like we'll get here and then it kind of fades away. Um, how do we sustain it? And do you feel like that is something that will happen? Yeah, I think so. Yesterday I actually interviewed this political scientist, Megan McFrancis, and she was, kind of talking about what it's going to take for this to be sustained. And she was like, it's definitely the education part. It's definitely the action part once you kind of like unlearn a lot of things. But then it's like, right, you're in the streets because your whole goal with being in the streets is public awareness, right? So when you look at all these polls that are saying 60% of people believe that like police violence is an issue now, like that kind of, those kinds of numbers are unheard of. But then on top of changing public opinion, then that's when you're right, like, taking political action, right? So I think we have the benefit of it being an election year, right? November, that's coming up so fast. And I think that just the timing of everything from coronavirus to the protests, and now, right, the summer and moving into the election, like that to me uh, is a really good thing for, for momentum to be lasting into like clear political action. And right, we see a lot of politicians, right? In the past, right, when uh, we saw the things that were happening in Ferguson, a lot of politicians, right, even Democrats were able to be like, you know what, I'm not going to even make this a part of my platform. I'm not going to address this. But now you see, like today I was checking my email. I'm like signed up for like Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, just all these people, everyone sending Juneteenth this, Juneteenth that. And I'm like, <laughs> this is, the, I've never seen this before. So yeah, the fact that politicians have to respond, right, the fact that someone like Joe Biden has to say, this is how I feel about defunding the police, that says a lot about how this like change of public opinion is going to affect what happens politically what do you um what do you think when you hear um potus say that he's responsible for the juneteenth awareness more than anyone else right now it's just it's 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 scary it's just like how could someone be so delusional (laughs) and just the way he said it like i was reading that interview and it was just like no one knew about it like i asked around no one knew about it and (laughs) when they asked the woman in his office she was like actually we commemorated it for the past three years and like by nobody knew about it and you didn't know about it they just had like a private party yeah yeah yeah. like (laughs) without him exactly yeah people today were like happy juneteenth to everybody except for donald trump so that makes sense it was donald and candace and kanye just (laughs) they had their own little private party every year for the last three years come on i have to say it's been new to me my awareness of juneteenth came on blackish like three or four years ago i had never heard of it It was never on my radar until i had seen that episode yeah You, you wrote an excellent piece about it like um Tell us a little bit about the research that went into that. And, and like, uh, did you learn things as you went along with it? Or Oh, yeah, definitely. Just because, like, everyone else, I think I was fortunate. So I was born and raised in Brooklyn. Um, I don't know if that's so... fortunate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> shout out to Brooklyn. So I was going to say, fortunately, in Brooklyn, I had, like, 
woke teachers, right? So I had like, I can shout them out, like Miss Coleman in middle school, Dr. Powell in high school. And these were just like, right? I don't even want to assign the word radical to them, but for what they did, it was radical. So right, I was aware of what Juneteenth was, not that it was ever something that was celebrated in our community in Brooklyn, but right, there was an awareness of like what it was. But even with that, right, there wasn't like a hope, oh, here's a lesson plan around like what this thing is. Here's like how this connects to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. There was no kind of like clear timeline or just connecting of just how this like event of Juneteenth even matters or means anything for us today. So I, again, had an awareness, but in terms of like celebration, I still feel like that probably didn't happen until like college for me, um, until much later. So um, in terms of reporting on that piece, I definitely like learned a lot, just like pulling up the original like language of like the orders that were given um, is fascinating. Just trying to understand the reason for like Abraham Lincoln's like Emancipation Proclamation. So that came down right in 1963. And then it was, I said 19, 1863. <laughs> it feels like it was right, 1963. <laughs> So 1863, um, that came down, and it wasn't until right two and a half years later in 1865 that the folks of Galveston, Texas, found out about uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. And that's just, like, scary to think about. And just looking at the language and trying to understand, like, why Abraham Lincoln even uh, wrote the Emancipation Proclamation to begin with, why it, you know, freed certain slaves and not others. Like, that was, like, a lot of new things that I was learning about. Also, the role of, like, freed black people so you know black people just freeing themselves and running to union army lines in order to seek emancipation like that was a big deal um in just the news spreading across the south and so just even the story about like why it took so long for the news of the proclamation to reach people in galveston texas there are like a bunch of different folk tales around that right like there's one story that says there was some dude riding on a horse with the news but then he was murdered so that's why like the news never got to that part of texas there's a, the, another story which i think is probably like the most accepted just the idea that uh white enslavers right in the south basically kept right they didn't want to share the news because they were had the incentives to say you know what i need this harvest i need to keep um slavery going so we're not going to say anything right and they were in the deepest reaches of the confederacy so they were able to do that kind of thing and even when the general arrived in Galveston that day, it still took, right, a while for this new normal to be a thing. So there's a quote that I included in the article. That's like a beautiful quote. I, I'll read it right now at the end. Um, basically just talking about freedom coming. So this guy recalling, he said it in 1937, Pierce Harper, he said, when peace come, they read the emancipation law to the colored people, the free people spent that night singing and shouting they wasn't slaves no more. And so that's like a beautiful thing to think about. But even though they were celebrating, there were still people, right, in some extreme cases who apparently for months were still enslaved and being beaten by uh, the people who enslaved them, even though the proclamation had come down, even though this order was in place. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely learned a lot. I think another thing that stuck out to me in doing research for this piece was how the celebration of Juneteenth really ebbed and flowed so throughout different periods so yes 1866 was the first time it was celebrated but right throughout different periods right throughout if we think about through uh reconstruction if we think about world war one era the world war ii era like just what black identity meant and how much pride you took in your blackness i think had a lot to do with how 
Juneteenth was celebrated. So there was a point where it was shameful, right, to talk about Juneteenth and it was actually considered unpatriotic if you were like, hey, I'm celebrating Juneteenth because thinking and looking back to slavery was something that was shameful, right? If you were connected to slavery, people kind of deem that to be a shameful thing. So that was like, that, that was really sad for me to learn about, that there was a period. But then of course, right, when we move forward to the civil rights era, it's like reclaiming that pride, reclaiming that identity. Um, and so it's like, let's bring this back again. So I feel like even right now in 2020, we're looking for things to kind of understand and confront that history. And so that's why I think this year, we're like putting Juneteenth front and center. Nice. Do you, do you get, you know, do you get, uh, this is for you and Reef, like, you know, knowing history and especially that history, right? So you had that hope that went out with Juneteenth. It was like, here we go. We're going to start with a better America. And then you had Reconstruction. We went backwards, right? So then in the 19 teens, you fight in World War I. You're like, hey, we're soldiers. We're part of this. You come back, the 20s, the Ku Klux Klan comes back. Civil rights era, followed by the war on drugs, which is obviously a very racist you know, systematic thing. Like, is there a certain like, okay, we're starting to make these steps forward, but we can't trust what's going to come afterwards? Or do you just keep fighting and say, okay, we're going to try this again? Yeah, I think that, again, when I was this conversation I had yesterday with Megan Ming Francis, she helped me realize that the fight, because I was asking her, like, was there another period of time that was, like, more effective at protests and in, like, bringing about change? And she was like, no, nah, we, we can't, like, just se separate these time periods as being, like, moments in and of themselves, but look at them as, like, we're in this for the long haul. Like, this is just going to be this long timeline of just, like, continued change, and that's why it's important to just continue to keep the pressure on. But, yeah, I think in my mind, my understanding is just, like, it's not necessarily right. You're going back because I feel like every step forward is like is a win. But I think this moment is maybe kind of clouding our vision in terms of like, oh, things are worse now. But I don't think things are worse now. Right. I think it's just like things are coming to the forefront. Right. We have cell phone video. We have body cams that are showing these things. We have social media that's making these things go viral. And so there's greater awareness. Right. And I take greater awareness in non-black people as well. So I think every step forward, I think we're moving forward as we continue. So it's just going to yeah, constantly be a fight until, yeah, true liberation. And right, people also disagree. You know, there are different ideas of what that looks like. But I think it's yeah. just going to be a never-ending fight. Yeah. Yeah, I've said this before. I've, I've said it on this show. Like, to me, you know, being being Black in America is like, you know, you're in a tank that is filling with water that stops, you know, just at your chin. And you are constantly treading and, and fighting for air and just trying to like, it, it just, it, it, it's ridiculous to me that at this point in my life, I'm, I'm probably way older than you. I'm 38, about to be 39. Mm -hmm. And my mother can tell stories about this and her mother, God rest her soul, would tell stories about this and her mother. And it's just like, you know, my kids today was very emotional for me because, you know, as you know, there's five, six, maybe seven at this point by the morning, uh, black babies that have been hung on trees. And, you know, it just feels like, when does this shit stop? And, and I don't know if it ever will. I feel like this is constantly going to be, I mean, look what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the fact that people that were slaves here got their freedom. So when you look at it in that context, 
we were never supposed to be anything but that. And that energy and those ideals were taught and, and instilled in people. So it doesn't matter how far we get away from that, that, that energy is still kind of around. So for me, it's very frustrating. But again, as she said, it's a fight and I'm down to fight. I'm, I'm from a line of fighters. I know people around me, like I just don't want to be around people that are not willing to fight. So that's where I'm at with it. Black, white, whatever color you are, if you're not trying to fight, you need to stay away from me. Have y'all seen a video from uh, Bethel, Ohio? No. That there was a protest. It's a town of like 2,500 people. And a, um, I think it was a high school teacher decided to have a Black Lives Matter protest. She put out a, a Facebook group meeting. And I think 25 to 30 people showed up for that. 700 counter protesters armed guns, baseball bats, spewing the most racial slurs proudly on camera. It's, I mean, yeah. it's one of the most horrifying things I've seen. Yeah. And I would highly suggest you just check out Bethel, Ohio. Yeah, it just happened, I think, like three or four days ago. Wow. Yeah. And which See, I had I mean, a question. That, that type of shit, man, it's just like, you know, like, for me, like, I'm not, like, I can't, I'll end up, I'll end up in jail or something. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just not, yeah. I'm not one of these people that are just letting this, like, you can't do that around me. You know what I mean? Like, so I try to stay far from that type of energy because I know me and I know my, the way I would react to it. And I just feel like there's a lot of people that weren't like that, that are starting to get like that to where they're like, we're not going to take that shit anymore. You can do that shit in Bethel, Ohio, but like, right, right. you can't come to my city and do that, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, you know, I wonder if there's a difference now you know, from, you know, speaking about the, the times we've been, we've had this, you know, these advances in America and then, the, and then going back, but, you know, to some degree, I mean, never before have black people had this much control of the culture. You know, I mean, you guys, uh, I mean, black people are like, that's what people look for, for style. That's who they look for, for music. That's who they look for, for entertainment. That's who they look for, for, to, for sports. Does that, do you think that makes any difference in terms of, what we're going through now versus what we went through then? Or do you think that, that, you know, with seeing things kind of rolling backwards, maybe not? Yeah. I, I kind of feel like, right. Black people have always like set the tone with culture, but I feel like historically, right. It's just like, it's been stolen. Right. So you think about Elvis and rock and roll and just like all these things, everyone says, like, when you look at so many things, there are just roots in, you know, they're rooted in oppression. They're rooted in, you know, black people who created these things and they were stolen. And I feel like even now today, it's kind of like the same story, even though, again, there's just more awareness towards it. So for example, all these books that people are going to buy written by black people, right? They're trending, they're number one on the bestsellers list. A lot of those authors still were not paid. Like even though they're number one on these bestsellers list, a lot of these authors were not paid the way they should have been paid for a lot of those books. Um, and I think that's a sad thing. So yes, those books are kind of setting culture right now and setting the tone. But still, when you when it comes down to the details, these black authors and artists are not on par with their white counterparts. And I think that's that's at the heart of the problem. Yeah. For me, um, I always go back to, there's a scene in Do the Right Thing um, where Spike Lee is talking to one of Sal's sons in the, in the, in the uh, pizza shop. And he's asking him, he's like, yo, man, your favorite artist is Prince. Your favorite comedian is Eddie Murphy. And he says, well, they ain't N-words. They ain't N-words. They're, right. they're different. And I yeah. feel like what you what you just alluded to was like, you know, with the culture, with music and, and movies and, and af- athletics, 
those guys are put to a higher standard. But like, if you don't respect the mailman or the lady that lives next door to you, like it can't just be that you respect certain aspects of black people. If you don't respect us as a whole, if we're not singing and dancing or dunking a basketball, then you're fucking racist. And I don't want anything to do with you. So that's, that's the stuff that has to change. And I feel like I've seen strides towards that more recently than I have in my whole existence. So I'm hopeful but again, as I said to you earlier, like I just hope that that's something that continues. So you know, right? Gotcha. Well, let's talk a little bit more in terms of uh, you know your your sort of your personal history. And I know you had a big uh, you you you've started I guess full time with Vox now. You went from Philly Mag, and you you just went full time with Vox. So that's a pretty uh, exciting. You know, we talk about how things have been crazy for all of us in the last three months. That's another thing that for you has probably been pretty exciting, and at the same time a little bit crazy, I guess. Right, right. Yeah, it's definitely been crazy. I've been at Vox full time now for two weeks. So I just, yeah, this week was just the end of my second week. Um, And I started freelancing with them in April. So just because coronavirus, right, that's the period where that's the moment where we realized that coronavirus was disproportionately impacting black people. And so there was room to kind of do a lot of that reporting and just looking at cities, right? I think Milwaukee was one of the first places uh, where numbers were released, but like the initial conversation was just like, these cities are not releasing the, the racial breakdown. And that was like scary. Cause even right. CDC and Dr. Fauci, all of them, they were just not even talking about race. So that was like the initial push. And so I was like, we're really fortunate to be able to tell those kinds of stories through Vox. Same thing at Philly Mac. I was able to look at Philly numbers and just be like, hey, why aren't there testing sites, you know, in North Philly in the same way that they're in Center City and stuff like that. So that was really cool to be able to tell that story. But yeah, the transition I think has been generally pretty smooth because there's so much to write about right now. So it's like, it's just overwhelming. But then at the same time, leaving Philly Mag after being there for almost five years was definitely um, a big move for me also. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, I've always called them, you know, mainline mag. They aren't exactly the Philly Mag. And I I saw what you wrote about, you know, Mm -hmm. you started working with people you really respected and then all of a sudden they were gone and don't do stories about the downtrodden. Can you talk, tell us a little bit about what you experienced as a journalist and as a black woman trying to write for this magazine? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, just everything you said about this idea of like Philly Mag being mainline mag. I started working there in 2016 in the spring. And as I said in that Twitter thread, I was hired by like an editor who was kind of brought in to kind of bring change to the magazine. And it was because the previous editor was pushed out into a different role in the company because of the controversial schools cover. So the schools cover, right, was a look at Philadelphia city schools, but then on the cover, it was just like, bare, I think there might've been like one, yeah, kid of color. And it was just like, this is not Philly. And that right came after the being white in Philly cover in 2013. So it was just like, just mess up after mess up. And so Coming in, it was clear that I was coming in at a time where, it, you know, I was under an editor who had high, made like just very specific, you know, just like, what am I saying? Calculated hires around like what the newsroom could be. Um, and so at that time, I felt like, wow, we're doing some really important stuff. We're covering stories that I think are more representative of what the city of Philadelphia looks like. But then sadly, right, a couple of months in, that editor was let go. 
and so what we heard at the time was that um, the now like deceased founder um, of Philadelphia magazine basically said like, oh, that editor cared too much about the downtrodden. Um, and so once we heard that, we were like, well, we're still like, you know, in 1960s Philly Mac type of stuff. Um, and so well, well, in his defense, that guy was like 95 years old. So. Yeah, yeah, he, was, he was old. Yeah, he was old. Um, and so, again, I feel like a lot of us are drawn to Philadelphia magazine because of the space that it occupies in the city. Right. It's still it's, it's it is the first city magazine. Right. So a lot of people don't know this, but it came before like New York magazine. And so. Philly Mag really did establish a lot of like the quintessential like elements of a city magazine, whether it's like the best of issue, whether it's guides to, you know, doctors um, across the city. So Philly Mag really is in that space. And so I think that's why a lot of us are attracted to it because it is a platform that a lot of people read, but at the same time, right, the average subscriber has an income of like something $194,000. And so when you think of that, it's like, is that people in Philadelphia? And if that's people in Philadelphia, what do these the, people look like? Yeah. The Lancy Street. Right, right. So, um, and while I was there, right, I never felt like, you know, I was like silenced or anything like that, right? Like I felt free to speak up, but there's only so much you can do without institutional weight behind you, right? There's only so much you can do. Um, so we, for example, while I was there, established like a diversity committee. We established a fellowship program with the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. But again, those moves were small things. Like, yes, they were steps in the right direction, but I still didn't feel like the higher ups were fully behind that because when we were in the diversity meetings, they weren't present at those meetings. Um, and so, <laughs> Sorry. So my, my issue with that was that when I saw these protests happening and when I was kind of moving on to this new position with Vox, I kind of felt weird, right? I'm like, oh, here I am about to like announce that I'm moving on to Vox. I just, I felt like I just wouldn't feel right if I didn't make a statement, right? We saw what was happening at the New York Times. We saw what was happening at Bon Appetit, Refinery29, Man Republic, just all these national places. And I'm like, I hope that people aren't thinking just because they don't see news or anything around certain places that it's not happening at these places too. But I'm just like, it's happening at these places, but there just are no people to kind of stand up and organize. And so that was the issue that I saw at Philly Mag. I was just like, I'm leaving. There was another, you know, young black woman who was also leaving. So that would basically left like one full-time like black writer, right? So writer who was like actually managing a vertical, right? And this or a goddamn magazine called Philly Mag. Like, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> And it, it's a tough thing because, again, I can say, yeah, the editors, right, they mean well. I, I, I do believe that they care about diversity, but I think something needed to happen to really, like, just make this go faster. Because, again, right, there were diversity plans before. There were, you know, diversity right. meetings before. You know, our CEO would say, yeah, I care about diversity. But, again, there just weren't any clear, I, I don't know, I just didn't feel a clear, like, momentum, a clear vision behind it. And so, yeah, that's what drove me to kind of say, you know what, I just have to say this stuff before I move on. Because I just felt like morally, because I care about just the stories that are being told, that, that it just needed to be said. And I feel like especially in this moment of protest, the fact that right, only white reporters, you know, majority white reporters are reporting and are on the streets during the protests. Like, and that's why we saw like the Buildings Matter 2 headline from the Philadelphia Inquirer, right? And people, what's funny with the Buildings Matter 2 headline is, I want to say two days before that, I went on Twitter to talk about a, another story that came out that I don't even know if, if y'all are aware of this, but they did a Pianos Matter. Like, they did a Pianos Matter, too. 
So they wrote a story about like their one of their arts writer writers wrote a story about how looters broke into a sore and pulled out a white piano and he was he wrote an entire story i mean granted it was like 350 words but he wrote a story talking oh, about shit. it's so sad that this piano was dragged into the street and i can't believe they vandalized this piano like that was a story that came out like amid stories of police brutality and police tear gassing people and i was just like they wrote a, sto- a whole story about a piano can I ask that Juneteenth piece was great on Vox. Could you have done that piece at Philly Mag or what would the reaction be if you would have proposed that? That's a great question. So I think, again, it also has to do with resources, right? That was something else. So oftentimes, right, priority would go to, oh, we need to do food coverage or we need to do this kind of coverage because that's right where advertiser dollars are coming in. Um, and so I think a lot of it has to do with resources. And so the, the Juneteenth piece that I wrote for Vox, right, that took time. That took me, right, going aside and saying, hey, I'm going to focus on this thing. But when I was at Philly Mac, it's just we need things to move a bit quicker to kind of keep up with the flow of things. Um, and so, again, I think there was a time when the editor, like some months ago, like back in January, in a meeting, right, was like, yeah, we need – to talk, we need to tell more stories about people who don't look like me, right? So he was saying, I want more stories about people of color. And he said it, and right, I, I definitely commend him for saying that. But again, what is the accountability system, right? I feel like we were at a place there where it was just like, I said it, but then it's like, there's no measure of accountability to really track. Was there, was there an outcome after you said, we need more stories about people of color. And so I think that's right. I would like pitch stuff and then things just fell by the wayside and it, it became up to you to kind of keep that uh, story up. But yeah, I, I have had opportunities. So like I wrote, so April, 2019th, we did like the Meek Mill cover and that was great. Um, and in that issue, we were able to do a list about like new Philly power. So actually I felt like that list was very diverse, younger people on the list. Right. And the idea behind that was kind of, Let's forget, right, because every couple of years, Philly Mag does like a hundred most influential people in Philadelphia. And right. often, right, that list is like the CEO of Comcast, the CEO of... <laughs> <laughs> it's often like those people who are at the top. So yeah. it was like really some great. Some of the top 15 are the Roberts yeah. family. And then... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Dick Vermeil. The Lindfest. <laughs> right, right. And so it was like really fun and inspiring when our editors were like, we don't want to know anybody on the list, like really take it, run with it. And so that was like another great moment. Another thing is I got to do a profile of Candace Owens because she was living in Philadelphia for some time. And I pitched that. that, Yeah. Yeah. Our editor was like, let's go with it. And so that was like really cool to be able to take a moment to write about that. So yeah. How was that? What was she like? It was, it was an experience. So I was able to, for the story, (laughs) sit down with her for dinner um, and then, so it was where, where do you go for dinner? We went, so we originally had one place in mind, but then that day they quickly changed it. So we went to a restaurant near 30th street. So there's a restaurant in one of the Sears center buildings. And so it was like right across the street from 30th street. Cause she was getting off a train. Okay. Um, okay. and it was like simple, you know, we had like burgers and fries and salad and that kind of stuff. So we had dinner and then she was going to give a talk at Penn. So then I followed her to basically watch. So there was a protest on campus because she was going to be there. Um, so I was like, you know, <laughs> in, taking notes yeah, of, on a protest on campus. Then she gave her talk at Penn. And so, you know, that's what she's kind of known for is like 
owning liberals. Like I own the libs, and so own them. Own the libs, yeah. So it <laughs> because everything, because everything now is professional wrestling. Right, right, right. Here's exactly. the to own the libs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and so it was like this weird thing where she talked maybe for like twenty five minutes, and I was like, all right, time for questions. So like you know, poor little Penn students like got up lined up to ask her questions and it was just like her just railing you know just railing against what they were saying just back in. and to me like right as an observer I was just like this is not a productive thing right here you have someone right yeah you have someone who's like trained to like shut down whatever kind of argument and in the time that you have it, it just didn't make sense and the people who invited her to campus were like you know the college republicans and whatever so she had support in the audience but it was just very tense um, in there. Was there a lot of booing and cheering and hissing? Like both, yeah, yeah, <laughs> both. yeah. Because even before, like before she started her talk, there were people on physically on the campus, and a lot of them weren't even students. It was just people from like Philadelphia who came to campus yeah. to be like, "She's this that, yeah, she's that hated, yeah, yeah, yeah." yeah. <laughs> um, she was just. It was just like this event should not be happening. So yeah, when the question and answer happened, it was just like this is. But you know what's funny? I remember talking to this one student in the audience who sat in front of me, this this black kid from Cali. He was, I was like, why are you here? Like, why did you come to this event on your campus? And he was like, this is entertainment for me. Like, he was like <laughs> I don't agree with a single thing she says, but he was like, it's an entertaining as shit. Like he was like, he was like, had his popcorn and everything. <laughs> like, this is what this is for this kid now. So yeah, then after that, I was able to, then I flew out to tech, to Texas, to Dallas, to see her in action at one of her Blexit rallies. And so that was like, you know, I had been to like, you know, some Trump stuff before, but this was like, right, because the goal was to bring black people together. Black Wait, people. did you just say Blexit? Blexit. Oh, yeah. Jesus Lord. Yeah. yeah. So I went to a Blexit event. Um, and of course, right, a lot of, I would say, for what it was, right, there just weren't enough black people in the room. If you're saying this is an event for black people, right, there were just so many white people who were like, blacks for Trumps, you know, like wearing the t-shirts. <laughs> so it was just like, that's, that's what it was. Largely. I don't mean to laugh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but at the same time, I did also speak to a lot of like, young black people who were trying to find themselves, right? Who were trying to, you know, they were like, something's not right with the Democrats. Yeah, so, we can yeah, agree on that. Yeah. yeah, let me see what this is about. And then, and then they had their uh, Kanye life is good shirts, right? They were right. like, uh, they, uh, yeah, with the little it's like those, it was like those uh, shirts from the 90s. It was just like the worst shirt I've ever seen. Mm. That was so amazing. What's funny about that, when I showed up to the rally, basically to enter they would give you like the ones that they had that day were neon colored and they were like in order to come in you have to wear it and i was like guys i'm a reporter i can't i can't i cannot wear it. right yeah, yeah. well, well i i, I want to ask about that because you're you know you're younger i mean you know I'm an, I'm an old head over here and 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 i'm still from the age of everybody talks you know everybody gets a shot at the podium you say what you want. If you get angry at it, you get angry at it. And now we're, you know, what everybody refers to as cancel culture. Right. And so do you, are you okay? You know, you were saying people were mad that Candace was speaking. Um, are you okay with Candace speaking at Penn? Is that something that yeah. you think is important that we hear that perspective? Or, you, or do you think that there's certain people that just shouldn't speak? 
Right. I think I think it comes to the point where it's like if if certain people, if what they're saying directly attacks my humanity, right? My existence as a black person, if your argument is black people, right, are inferior, if that's what's at the root of what your argument or your talk is, like that's problematic to me. And so at that time with Candace, right? I think people don't realize how dangerous rhetoric can be. So if we think about the shooter in New Zealand, like she was named in that guy's manifesto. And so that was like around the same time. And people are like, why are you bringing this person who right is associated with Nazis associated with, you know, just people, people of those groups, people of that ilk kind of right look up to her. And so that, I think there's something to be said about like, if what you're saying incites violence, right, against marginalized people, incites violence, period, we need to look at, right, whether it makes sense for you to be coming to, 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 to a campus to speak. Um, and again, right, even when, right, when Candace is like, oh, I want, like, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to debate me, they do that kind of thing, right, same thing, Ben Shapiro, like, these people do this kind of thing just to, it's, it's a sport, like you were saying, it's just this new sport where to me it's just not fruitful i i just don't see what the benefit of they're it is. just all cutting wrestling promos i mean yeah. that's all i mean i'm a wrestling fan from way back and it's the exact same yeah. thing it's yeah. just screaming about how great you are and what idiots all the other wrestlers are exactly and like, that's why, like she said like, i'm sorry go ahead i didn't mean to cut you off yeah no i just want and that's why i appreciated being able to get to sit down with candace owens like over dinner right without like this spectacle without this big audience and it's like let's just talk let's talk about facts and there were just certain things that like i was like her belief in certain things are based upon things that aren't facts right mm-hmm. so she said stuff about like trump and like the black unemployment rate that i was just like okay that's actually not factual stuff mm-hmm. about the central park five it's like okay that's actually not true and so that's why I'm like, okay, we differ a lot because we're not even starting from the same foundation of facts. Right. How do you how do you do that as a journalist? Separate your personal uh, feelings and beliefs when you have to sit across from someone that you know is just kind of just throwing bullshit. Right. Yeah, and that's a good question because I feel like we're in an era of journalism where people try to create this like false idea of like, oh, journalism should be like objective. Um, journalism, you're right, you need to get rid of your, but it's like, no, that's the beauty of like being a journalist, I think now is that you shouldn't be right, right, my identity should be a part of the story. And I think that that's what was cool about the story. It's like everything I'd seen about Candace Owens before, I want to say like the two big stories that I had seen, like NBC did one and the Washington Post magazine had done one. And they were both written by white women. And those stories did not bring any kind of like racial context in terms of like, the fact that she is a black woman who has this kind of platform. And so I feel like for me, when I was writing the story about Candace Owens, like absolutely I was bringing my identity as a black woman. The fact that, you know, we were part of the same age group, you know, raised in similar ways. Like those are things that I cannot separate from what I'm doing as a journalist. And so I feel like now even more than ever, it's important to write. So when I was like starting this job at Vox, I had a conversation with my editor and she was just like, right, we, we can no longer pretend that, right, this is what we support, you know, or, you know, we're not going to lie. Like we're, Oh, like we, you know, it's clear that we're not Trump supporters from the kind of reporting that we do. Um, And so I think that that's like a new space that we're in, in journalism, because I feel like, 
there's always this thing for black writers, especially of like, oh, you're going to be biased because you're black. So you can't really tell the story. But it's just like, wait, white men, right, are constantly reporting on things. What about their bias? Right. And they're just kind of constantly seen as like objective reporters. But it's just right. It's not the case. Yeah. That's the baseline. That's what everyone's used to. This right. is the norm. Come exactly. on. I remember growing up, it was like, you know, Ted Koppel, Tom Brokaw, uh, you know, whoever the other guy was, you know. Anderson Cooper. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you look at the newsrooms. I mean, you know, the newsrooms in Philly. And we're, you know, I think Philly's a great, uh, a great example of where places should be versus where they are, right? Because the city is almost broken in half, you know, racially. So it's like here's here's where here's the numbers where the numbers should be, and then you look at the inquiry, you look at Philly Mag, and it's eighty five percent white, and you're like, that's not reporting Philadelphia, that's reporting white people's Philadelphia. Now, do you feel like that has something to do with black kids not being into journalism and writing, or is that just not they're not hiring them? It's just it's just not true. Yeah, it's constantly this idea of like, oh, we can't find any, we can't find any journalists, but it's just like. It, it has something to do with the network, right? It has to do with nepotism, right? The fact that this person's son is going to get hired. Um, it's the fact that, right, there aren't clear, like, hiring guidelines, right? So a lot of people will tell you, like, I didn't get my job through, you know, hiring through a jobs board. I got it because I knew someone who knew somebody, right? As long as, like, a lot of hiring is taking place that way, it's a problem. So I, I know a lot of places are changing the way they're doing hiring, but I just do not buy the argument because we have huge organizations like PABJ, NABJ that are like, here, look at all these journalists um, that are here. And it's a really just sad thing that it's just constantly, we can't find any. And I, I honestly think it's, we're not putting enough effort to create an environment that makes right these kinds of journalists want to stay, that makes them want to stay in the industry. It was the same thing when I was a teacher. Um, right? It's the same thing, right? We don't have enough teachers of color, especially we don't have enough black men who are teachers. But again, right, when you get to a certain place in your career, it's like you want to be, you want to feel valued in your profession, right? You want to feel like you're making a difference. And sometimes right in the classroom, you don't feel that way. And so same thing, the education system, journalism just did not foster environments and networks that made, uh, yeah, these people with these skills kind of want to stay. And so for me, with the fellowship program that we had, right, we had a number of just really talented young people come through uh, the program. And it was just like really great to be able to work with them. And sadly, like looking at some of the fellowship programs, like some stories that I've heard about other places in Philly, that just these fellows sadly did not right, get the mentorship that they needed. They didn't get the kind of like room to explore because again people just come with those biases of like this black reporter doesn't have the training so we're just going to have them you know work on the home page doing like production stuff but not actually right oh this person doesn't have enough experience to be on the investigations team but yet right someone of the same age but just because they're white like you automatically kind of in your head think oh they'd probably be better at doing this job um and yeah and i, I again don't think that's going to change until new leadership uh, changes happen and we have like real accountability systems to kind of measure the kind of change that, that we want to see. What did you, what was your class in uh, Camden? What did you teach? So I taught uh, English. So basically language arts uh, for three years. Um, and it was like, yeah, being in Camden was just an incredible experience because I think, right. It's a city that people know is like, you know, having one of the highest murder rates, um, in the city. And then when you get there and I'm with my students, it's just like, of course, the violence is, it's, it's crazy. It's unbelievable. 
but at the same time, right, there are students who care so much about the city, who, who want to learn, who want to uh, be great in life. So it was, it was a really, a really great experience. But at the same time, I think one of my biggest, the biggest things that I learned there is just how to kind of work with and support and nurture people who have experienced some serious trauma. Because I, I kid you not, I can say probably every single one of my students had someone, you know, right, knew someone in their family, someone close to them who was shot someone who was right. I had students who were uh, just the victims of some really serious like violence, sexual violence, physical violence, police violence, um, gun violence. And it was, that was a huge, huge part of the experience of teaching in Camden for sure. But at the same time, right, just the joy of the city invincible, like that kind of energy yeah. um, was, was great. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, and it, you know, and it, they're, they're kind of part of the model that some other cities are yep. looking at now in terms of policing and, and what happens when you, when you kind of go to a, a community version of policing versus, a, you know, put the riot gear on, on and just start cracking heads, which is, yeah. you know, unfortunately what we saw in this, what we saw in Philadelphia a couple of weeks ago. Literally cracking heads. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, what what what's your what's your that's no, that's no baloney it happened <laughs> right uh what's your hope coming out of this you know i mean both with you know this is the last three months and who knows how much into the future we're in this sort of transformative time that's going to swing one way or the other probably what's what's your hope uh what's the hopeful side of you say will come out of what we've just gone through I think it's definitely the language that people now have, right? Stuff like saying anti-racist, just the language of defund the police, just even racism, like just so many of just getting people to say slavery was a thing, right? I feel like maybe even a couple of years ago, people just would say stuff like, why are we even talking about slavery? Like that happened so long ago, like y'all are obsessed with slavery. You're obsessed with your race, but it's like, no, this stuff is forced upon us. Like, we need to recognize, right? So I just think the, the language that's being shared right now, people learning how to talk about these things is just really, really powerful. Because I feel like there, there's a time, especially right as a black reporter, where you feel like you're the only one in the room who understands what, you know, what defund the police means or abolish the system or systemic racism, just stuff like that. Just that basic knowledge of language is important. Um, and then just people committing to to being on this journey to actively fight, right? Because again, people looked at it like, oh, that's a black thing. That's something that black people have to figure out. But now, right, white people accepting this as like, wow, this is my problem to fix. That to me is like really what's going to keep this going, hopefully, right? And and moving past the election. I love that the, you have groups of pe white people who say, oh, slavery was 150 years ago. And some of yeah. those people are defending a statue from a guy from 500 years ago. No, even better. Those people are saying, why don't you get over slavery is 150 <laughs> years ago? And then they put their Confederate hat on and they get in their <laughs> pickup truck that's got a Confederate flag on the back. I mean, the okay. irony yeah. is just yeah. unbelievable. And now you're from the South. And then you have people right. that, you know, 9-11 right, 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 right. was terrible, but it's, you never forget 9-11. You never forget, yeah. you never forget Pearl Harbor. Like, like the idea that yeah. that shit was so atrocious and so fucking vile and horrible that, like, we're supposed to take that and not remember it. 
but you can remember every horrible thing that has happened in this country besides that? Nah. Right. Nah. Right. Nah. Yeah. Nah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating because my sister lives in Richmond. And mm. Richmond is a city that's gotten much more progressive in the, in the past couple of decades, but it's known for its main strip is known for having all of these Confederate statues, right? Monument Avenue. It's, the, it's like the nice part of town. And they tried to put up an Arthur Ashe statue uh, maybe 20 years ago, and it was a huge controversy. And at the end, they had to make the Arthur Ashe statue face a different direction than the Confederate wow. general. Yeah. So you can't even look at him as a statue, huh? Yeah. So, so the fact that now that looks like they're actually going to remove those statues, you know, for me, you know, I'm originally from Virginia, Fabiola, but like for me, it's like, thank God, like how, how, how awesome is this that in my lifetime I get to see this happen? Because like for anybody that's of any, you know, that's not that doesn't hold on to that Confederate thing. Um, and I don't know why you would. I mean, why did, you know, like. Because you're fucking racist. <laughs> right. <I'm... laughs> we lost the fight, guys. Like, you know, like, if, if, let's let's move on here. But like, you know, it's it's just been clung to for so long. And just the hope that those things come down. And in my son's lifetime, if we go visit my sister, that's not something we drive past. And it's not something he thinks about. He's not like, who, who are those guys? Fuck those guys. Fuck Robert E. Lee. You know, like I, 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 you know, he was an asshole. Like, you know, and like it's, it's, you know, I hope that, you know, I mean, statues are statues and, and, and you don't want to get too caught up in, in, in that whole thing. But like, you know, hopefully coming out of this, we can finally move past what happened 160 years ago when it comes to the Confederacy, because otherwise we're headed for Civil War II you know this time it's personal you know like at some point it's like we either got to we either got to move past this or we just got to we got to finish we got to go back to the fight like what are we doing we're just like passively aggressively handing this whole thing down generation to generation i don't know it's just like it's just frustrating that it keeps rearing its ugly head and i'm hopeful that the fact that now i feel like there is this domino effect we're like you know, even like the SEC was like, we're not going to have, we're not going to have championships if Mississippi doesn't change its flag. Mm. You know, like that's, right. you know, I don't get too caught up in corporate activism, but, uh, you know, but like at that level, I'm like, okay, good. You know, like it's time. It's, it's yeah. freaking time. Let's, let's, let's cut you, the, <clears throat> let's cut it here. You know what else it's time for? The blunt. The, the blunt. All right, let's do it. We're going to go rapid fire questions. Does she know what the blunt is? I don't. I'm like. Oh, boo. <laughs> that means you haven't even listened to one of our broadcasts. Man, man. Hey, 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 in her, hey, hey, in her defense, she only knew she was going to appear here like six hours ago. <laughs> Come on, man. Philly Mag was all over. And you ain't even, see, you ain't even <laughs> sent her the right fucking you link. Yeah, you would think professionals like ourselves would have reached out to her weeks ago to line this up. I apologize. Up. Okay. <laughs> On my behalf, I apologize. All right. Where uh, where are you most excited? Well, so give her the rules. Questions, rapid fire answers. We're just going to okay. come quickly at you. Um, where are you most excited to go back out to eat once things are back to normal? Ooh. I am obsessed with Poi Dog in Philly, so a little Hawaiian joint in Center City. Nice. Just such yep. good, like pork belly and yeah, hot dogs and stuff. Yeah. 
You right. said that you come from a Haitian family, Haitian background. Are they stereotypically super over, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Over. Uh, I'm not saying anything. I have no idea. No, no, no. Like, uh, like, you know, overprotective. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Growing up, just super sheltered. Couldn't All my Haitian friends, they say their parents were like psychos. So, yeah, couldn't go to sleepovers, nice. couldn't hang out. But now I'm like, I'm an adult. They can't touch me. Nice. <laughs> I will not call your parents psychos, and I will ask you, uh, what does what does Philly do better than Brooklyn? Ooh, what does Philly do better? I think Philly is better at being real, being gritty. Like, there's just something about Philly where I feel like people just don't try too hard. And sadly, when I think about Brooklyn, I think about just the new folks that are in there, just the gentrification. And so for me in Brooklyn, I'm like, oh, where can I go right now? But I still feel like in Philly, there are places where I'm like, I feel comfortable, right? And there are places in Philly that remind me of that old Brooklyn that I really miss. Yep. Uh, what song makes you want to dance? Ooh. Huh. That's a tough one, because there are so many. Um... I'm trying to think of something recent. Or you know what? I'm really into Burna Boy right now. So mm -hmm. anything off of just, just Afro beats, anything, I'm just like super into right now. Yeah. Who is someone that is, uh, you would love to interview? Ooh. I'd love to interview Brittany Cooper. Um, so she's a feminist. She recently wrote a book called um, Eloquent Rage. And so she just talks about the role of black women um, in the movement and just yeah just how like the movement may or may not be continuing to kind of erase the stories of black women who are victims of like police brutality and all of this um so i think you went to murray bertram high school correct yes so a q-tip and fife dog went there so yes. are you are you team tribe or team roots Oh, that's hard. I mean, because it, I was obsessed with Q-Tip because he went to Bertram, so I'd say Team Tribe for right now, for sure. Yeah. That's fair. Uh, least favorite subject in school? Ooh. So Murray Bertram was a school that had, like, it was focused on business careers. So we just, like, the most random stuff, like keyboarding classes and, like, so we had, I, I was, I took a lot of accounting classes, so I was not a fan, but I had to take those. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm noticing a ring. Yes. <clears throat> they are vintage rings on these fingers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keep it moving. <laughs> um, what one word would uh, Miss Coleman use to describe you? Ooh. Maybe feisty. I think she'd say feisty. Thinking about, yeah, the relationship that we had. Um, yeah, I was eager to learn, but feisty. <laughs> what, uh, what have you been uh, binge watching? Ooh, I mean, finish Insecure with the season uh, that happened. So I don't know if that's binge, but I did binge Killing Eve recently. Huge fan of that on BBC. Mm -hmm. I always ask everyone this on the show. Mm -hmm. Give us a short, quick burst on your take, best advice on relationships. Not just loved ones, but like relationships in general. How do they work? 
Yeah, I think they work by communication. And it's something that I've struggled with, right? So yeah, <laughs> I'm, this. I'm sorry, I'll text you back. But I think <laughs> communication, communication is key. Um, just say what you mean and, and talk it out as best as you can. For sure. Um, did you know you had a full-time gig at Vox before you started the thread on Twitter about Philly Mag? Yeah, I was already working. <laughs> you were good to go. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that was locked out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what one word would describe your sense of humor? Ooh. Uh, I'd say it's it's good. I have good timing, so timing, timely, timely. Okay. <laughs> good mm-hmm. comedic timing. <laughs> um, what book are you reading right now that you recommend for all of us or have read? Yeah, so I'm reading a book uh, called Wayward Lives and Beautiful Experiments by C.D. Hartman, who's a professor at Columbia. And it's specifically looking at uh, black women in like the early 20th century. So just kind of like their lives, you know, trying to get established in like major cities. So she specifically looks at like Philadelphia, New York. And just she talks about like their sex lives, their romantic lives, Mm -hmm. uh, just like what they like to do, party. And I just feel like it's such a fun like, part of history or not fun part but like just a, a a part that's like neglected right just the kind of things that these women were were doing uh to mm-hmm. fight against the the conditions that they lived in i noticed and i appreciate that quaker gear yeah yeah so uh <laughs> yeah give us a um uh, what's one redeeming thing about pen mm. they <laughs> <laughs> they have a lot of property. They have a lot of power. Um, no, I think, hmm, this is tough because, right, obviously, so I went to Penn for grad school. I got my master's there in education. And so, yeah, I just think the scholarship um, and just the kind of community that Penn has been able to foster. So I've gone back, you know, for a lot of alumni events. So it's like John Legend was there one time to, like, do a concert since he's an alum. And that was great. So I think their presence in Philadelphia with a lot of like development has been helpful, but at the same time, just there's right. The negative sides to the development and expansion that they've done um, in West Philly and just the establishment of university city. Uh, but at the same, right. There are pros and cons uh, mm-hmm. to what Penn is doing. Well, what, uh, all right. What's, what, what's our uh, socials? Where should people find you? What should they, uh, yeah. Where should they look? Yeah, so I on Instagram, not on Instagram, on Twitter, I'm at Fabio Sinius. Instagram, it's the same thing, but I'm an Insta lurker, so I don't really, <laughs> I use it to like shop and like see what other people are doing, but it's something I, like, right. I need to work on my IG presence. Wait, you can shop on Instagram? Oh, yeah, that's, that's where I shop. So many, yeah, just click of a button type stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much, Fabiola. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you. For me. This was awesome. Yeah, keep up the good work. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate that. Piece appreciate you. Stay safe out there and keep yeah. doing great work. You yep. too. Happy sure. Juneteenth. Have a good night. Happy Juneteenth. Good night. Just the sound of Philadelphia. Covered in blood, the man's office is covered in bugs, the youth dreams cut short.